Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and welcome back to my favorite time of the week. And on the Inspiring Leadership series, I am really fortunate to have Caroline Goida. And Caroline is an expert voice and speaker coach. She's a TEDx speaker, the author of Gravitas, a book, uh, an audio book I very much enjoyed listening to, and Find Your Voice, which has just come out and will shortly be coming out in audio, which is my preferred way of listening as a recovering dyslexic. And Caroline, I found a real joy to work with. She's very kindly also going to speak on behalf of the charity for the Inspired Leadership Trust for Vulnerable Girls. And just a, a very generous spirited lady. So Caroline, great to have you on the series. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Jonathan. Thank you. Not at all. So we were talking earlier about what gives our life meaning and purpose. You know, why are you on the planet? What gives your life meaning and purpose, Caroline? My happy place is helping people, I mean, it's really quite simple, find their voices and find their ability to own a room and to speak with calm and confidence and to feel that it can be easy and centered and relaxed. Hmm. And when someone, I had a client this week speak at a big conference and I had the feedback that she did it with absolute ease and authority. When I hear from someone that they've had that, that that makes my life feel purposeful and worthwhile. Mm. That's, that's, it's lovely because, as you know yourself only too well, many of the people that I talk to in coaching, they want to have more confidence. They want to speak and find their voice, particularly men and women, but a, a number of women want to find their voice. And indeed, with the girls who've been abused and part of the county lines that uh, Lee is the CEO of the charity works with. They um, really do want to find their voice. Um, they've been abused or whatever, and they haven't. They've been told psychologically to close down. And indeed, she was speaking in Bradford to a fascinating group of some 100 Asian women. And for them, this is really important to find their voice. So lovely that you're living your life on purpose rather than off purpose, Caroline. And then... So when you're at your best, that's great. And, and who was it that you look back on and think they really were inspirational to you? They're quite role models. And what qualities did you and do you admire about them? Well, I suppose there are, there are two people in different times in my life. I suppose the first person is actually my father, if I think about it, because mm. my dad, Bill, is... Um, was a lawyer professionally but in his heart he is a jazz musician mm. and I grew up with someone passionate about jazz saxophone and clarinet mm. who would practice you know every evening go off and play in bands and so I, although I didn't ever learn to play the saxophone probably much to his distress <laughs> I I grew up with a sense of voice because the, the clarinet and saxophone are very close to the human voice and mm. practice is important, breath is important, expression is important. And I suppose that that unconsciously 
had a big impact on me. And mm. and, and I've said it to my father recently because I think he should be proud of what he set up in a way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and what are the qualities did you admire about your father as a, as a leader in his own way? Because leaders don't have to have hundreds of people working for them. It's it's actually a personal choice you make to lead others and influence them, persuade them. And it, and he did actually end up being managing partner of his law firm. So he did, wow. in a more formal way, he became a leader. Mm. Um, he, my father is uh, very empathetic and very able to take the emotion out of a situation without being cold. And mm. he's, he, he can... He can calm a situation down. He can. He's a very good mediator, and I think he was always able to do that even before he formally became a mediator. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I hope I have learned from him. Mm. Uh, and it's interesting because, of course, some some listeners will be quite scathing about a lawyer who has empathy. Uh, the law, the law doesn't want to get too empathetic. But actually, I've met some really very empathetic lawyers, and I suppose. That would give your father an incredible edge, particularly why he could become the managing partner, because he actually did get the emotional and social intelligence part of the job and not not just the letter of the law. Interesting. Cold, hard logic. And I think that's why he, in the end he wanted to become a mediator, because, of course, it takes some empathy to get things settled before you go to court. Mm, and, mm, very much. and I think he found that very interesting. Well, that's, that has a resonance for me because my brother Graham, who was president of the British Plastic Surgeons, and he is a very good surgeon, he was finding that he was with surgeons who some of them had very little emotional and social or bedside manner and were quite brusque and um, excellent surgeons, but just their interpersonal skills were very poor. So he also went and trained as a mediator. Um, and I find him excellent at that. So it's interesting two different professions, but yet with the same challenge about how people connect with humans rather than letters of the law or bodies. And then, then who else was, was an inspiration to you? And what were their qualities? And the next person, I think there were, there were two of them nested mm-hmm. into the yeah, same We can, we can, have, we can have the two of them. Let's have the two of them. So when I started to train as a voice coach, um, Cicely Berry, who died, I think, last year, is was uh, just an archetype of you know what it means to be a good voice coach she kind of Mm. created my profession and she worked for a long time at the Royal Shakespeare Company and you know if people are interested in put her into YouTube she was the most passionate funny clear thinking woman that you could hear speaking and she is and you know was completely inspiring and her um, student David Carey taught mm-hmm. me at Central School of Speech and Drama and has many of those qualities. And is it, again, is there's a theme here, a bit like my father, very centered, very empathetic. And I think that's something that I very much admire in people. Mm. Very much so. And, and you mentioned a second? So City Berry and, and David Carey, who really was her um, student. So it, they, they kind of, they fit together in a way. Mm. And what were, what were his qualities that you admired? He is expert and centered and focused and incredibly empathetic. He has a great voice. He knows everything there is to know about my field. And he is just someone I really respect. Hmm. Really, His expertise is something that I really respect. Yeah, fantastic. Well, it's a, it's a, a really useful 
area to be working in to really help people, particularly who want to get across a message or want to persuade or influence or lead people. So going from those who inspired you to your own experiences, um, what about um, in your own way leading other people? What did, what did you learn about getting things wrong and how did that shape you and the work that you do now as a result of learning from that mistake? What was, what was a personal mistake you were making or an approach that didn't work? Well, I suppose I learned to lead at the coal phase in a way because teaching is, is a very kind of pure form of leadership in the sense that people will tell you really quickly when you've got it wrong. And I think sometimes in corporate life, perhaps people are more polite. I don't, I, I don't know if that's always the case. But I, I know a number a class... of CEOs who are not, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> in, a, in a classroom situation, especially where students are paying themselves, you, you know very quickly if they're not happy. And I was running sessions at Central School of Speech and Drama with um, an actress called Sarah Kestelman who is great and also doesn't take fools you know, lightly. She will tell you very quickly what she thinks. And mm. we were running a session and she said to me, this looks like very hard work for you. Mm. And, and what she meant is that I was forcing it. I was, mm. I was tense. I was giving it too much energy, which sounds that, that 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 should be a problem might sound odd to some people, but the actor recognised that I I was missing out on ease that would have allowed me to listen better and be present to the audience better, and to allow things to flow better. And I think, you know, when I work with leaders, I often spend time working at C-suite on speeches these days, and I think that's a quality that ease that is so important in leadership at the highest level because it communicates a sense of your confidence in yourself yeah what she spotted was that the confidence wasn't there so i was pushing it yeah yeah it was a very good lesson and it can come across as a bit of a if it's someone speaking it could come across as a bit manic um and people when i think of the finest leaders and and many i've met in the military when i was in, in the army for 20 years and some of the finest were rarely measured just said a few words, said it slowly and calmly. And, and it almost, you could almost feel people's shoulders drop and relax. Exactly. They knew they were being led by someone who was in command and in control of the situation and not running wildly out of order. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting one. Okay, so that was your, your learning and, and, how, and, and how did you take that and use it in your own teaching to other people? Well, it's interesting because it then became a bit of a journey of discovery. And I, at that point, embarked on a PhD, which I didn't ever finish. But in researching this PhD, I started to do Alexander Technique mm. because he was a practitioner whose work I wanted to write about. And although it's classic, isn't it? Because I left Oxford and was like to work with my brain. I went towards Alexander Technique because I thought it was something I wanted to explore intellectually, but actually it changed my life. It changed really? my life. It, it's such a powerful system to help anyone find ease. And I regularly recommend it to clients because it's truly transformational, that which is, is why... So go on, no, you, you go. It's why top-class musicians do it and dancers and conductors and yeah. it's... 
I've heard about it so often and I will do it. I just haven't found anywhere to go and learn Alexander Technique, but I'm sure you could recommend someone to me in London and uh, that I could go along and um, learn the Alexander Technique from. Because explain, explain sorry. to, sorry, you, you tell me and then explain to people what it is, because you and I know what it is, but, but others listening may not. So it was, it was founded by um, F.M. Alexander, who was in Australia and was, he was, he, he, he was a reciter. I don't, we don't really use that description anymore, but he recited texts. He was a, an actor and he kept losing his voice and he couldn't work out why. And he started this course of self-study where he started to observe his habits in a mirror. And he realized that he had certain patterns of use, as an Alexander teacher would describe it, that were affecting his breath, his body and his voice. Mm. And so he created a system that allows people to unpick their use, unpick how they're showing up and very gently creates new habits. Mm. And you tend to work one-to-one with a teacher and they just, they just gently move you out of an old set of habits into a, a new, more aligned set of habits, which changes not just your posture, but also in my experience, it changes your psychology, your calm. And there's even a Nobel prize speech on it. Um, Tinbergen, who was a physiologist, did a Nobel Prize speech on it in 1973, talking about how profound its effects were. Brilliant. And what was the place that you recommended we go to? So there's a, all, I mean, all over there are teachers. The, the Society of the Teachers of Alexander Technique has a website, and it's S-T-A-T, and you can put in your postcode and a trained teacher will pop up. Really? So the Society of the Teachers of the Alexander Technique? That's it. And the, the, it's, the teachers at that school are kind of direct descendants of Alexander. Sounds... Well, not his children. That's right. It sounds rather cult-like. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a cult. Okay. No, no. I, I tease. Um, okay. So let's um, have your first top tip um, for um, the podcast listeners. What would your first top tip about being a better leader? What would you, um, what, what advice would you give practically? So I suppose the first top tip, which flows nicely out of Alexander and this idea of ease is the idea that we can't communicate leadership to others unless we can lead ourselves. And that's, of course, not a new idea. Marcus Aurelius was talking about Mm. it. However, there's a whole load of research around the vagus nerve, polyvagal theory, Mm -hmm. which talks about how we create um, a sense of safety in ourselves and in others. And when we look after our breath, our alignments, our our bodies, as well as our minds, which so many people forget to do these days, Mm -hmm. you know, myself included sometimes, Mm -hmm. then our systems feel safe. And when our systems feel safe, we communicate that safety, just as you said, in terms of the military, we -hmm. communicate that safety to others and their shoulders drop. Yeah, And a, a lot of what I talk about to leaders at the moment as speakers is cutting the gasp because when leaders are given a speech on paper, which so often happens, what happens is they look down, they put it on the lectern and they probably haven't read it through much more than once and they start to read and the first thing they do is go <gasps> very subtly. You might not hear it, but it's an in-breath through the mouth. Mm. And that in-breath 
creates a sense of stress for the body. Mm. And that, that flows into the voice. And so your voice is traveling out across the room, probably on a microphone, and it takes with it a sense of stress, which the audience subtly pick up. Mm. And that's great if you want to stress an audience out. <laughs> but if you don't and you're not conscious of it, then it's, it's risky. Uh, that's very interesting. And what do you learn from your cats? Because we can clearly hear one there. <laughs> yes. She, with the, a, that she's hungry. Yeah. And yeah. B, that, that her use is, is excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that, actually the, apparently cats a, talk to humans and they meow and make noises to humans, but they don't do it to each other. It's just humans. They've learned to speak to humans. Cupboard love. Yeah. Well, it seems to work there, doesn't it? It works a treat. Yeah. As, as our dog, when he, uh, she talks to us, a Siberian husky who's forever wanting to be fed. Oh. Um, and yeah. the, I mean, the, the thing about cats and children is that they tend to have a very natural, easy use of voice and body. And mm. so mm. that always makes me feel better because it reminds me that this is innate. We just unlearn it. Oh, yes. So if I have a chief executive who is struggling with his or her speech, I know that there's a relaxed person in there just waiting to get out. That's we just very, have to find them. Yeah, it's a very good way of looking at it. And, and so Ken Robinson sp speaks so beautifully on that and how children have that ease and ability to do drama and speak with confidence. But yet somehow by the time they become teenagers, they've become insecure and anxious and feeling the imposter syndrome. They, they lose it all, don't they? And I mean, I certainly hit that one because I had been very unsporty as a child and, and then went to university. And when I got to drama school, they said to me, you're stuck in your head. Mm. And so I, I had a very rude awakening around what I'd lost in terms of mm. centeredness. Mm. And I think the last 20 years has been about refining it, really. Yeah. And how do you find that sport and uh, fitness and, you know, mindfulness and yoga and things helps people's confidence with speaking i mean i am a massive advocate of disciplines that center and yoke mind and body because the voice is on the cusp of the mind the breath and the body in fact in tibetan um, ideas they don't talk about mind body spirit they talk about mind body voice mm. so anything that you can do that centers your body and your breath is going to help you as a speaker. Mm. There are certain things that people come to me with that aren't helpful. One is if people do a lot of cycling, which often people do these days, it's great, but you do need to stretch out your psoas muscle. There's a muscle that goes through the leg, through the hip and up to the back mm. of the diaphragm. Mm -hmm. And people who cycle a lot, the hips become very tight, the hip flexors become tight, and that often has an impact on the psoas, which impacts the voice. So when I get someone who's a really keen cyclist, I'll say, you need to do some hip stretches to balance uh, it uh, out. How do you stretch that practically? How would you describe that, the psoas stretch? The psoas muscle, there's a great book called The Vital Psoas Muscle, which right. you can search for on Amazon, and that has some really good, or any other good bookseller, and that has some really good stretches. Or a good physiotherapist, a good yoga teacher will, if you say to them, psoas muscle, they will help you. I mean, the runner's lunge is a classic psoas stretch. Yes. And also a, a side bend. Mm-hmm. Okay. Brilliant. And then, so let's go into 
um, as you were moving from head to body and to voice, um, what was that journey from early life into Oxford University and on to all the other training and development you did? Tell us a bit about it and who influenced you. So I grew up uh, riding ponies around the northeast of England and having quite a, a kind of bucolic, I think you would call childhood. I loved words and I think I was always someone who had a facility with words. So I ended up studying English literature and because of a very good teacher, which is always the case, isn't it? You know, teachers are the first mm -hmm. leaders, really. Mm -hmm. who encouraged me to apply for Oxford when probably other people wouldn't have done. I think my housemaster nearly laughed me out of the building when, he, when I said I was going to. I got into St John's College for uh, English. A, a hard college to get into for English. Yes, exactly. Um, and that was... Uh, it, Oxford is a wonderful place and it's also uh, not so wonderful in the sense that it's full of people who have worked incredibly hard to get in there. And it's intense and wonderful and also quite neurotic making and i think that oh, yeah. when you talk to people who've been there that, that's often a common thread of experience i loved it on lots of levels and it it taught me how to be able to exist on the edge of your competence because you're always surrounded by people who are cleverer than you let's and stay, i think the, let's stay with that theme because um from those I've met, and, I, and Harriet, my daughter, who went to Bristol, um, she ended up trying for English at Oxford. And um, she got a first in English from Bristol. So she oh, wow. incredibly well. Um, but, but it was very hard to get in. So I take my hat off to you. Um, but Brani, my other daughter, who was at, um, uh, got a first at Cambridge, she, she found that she was surrounded by other over-anxious overachievers. Yeah. And <laughs> that... Um, if people didn't have enough psychological damage from being at boarding school or public school, uh, they certainly got it from being at, at Oxbridge where they were thought they were very good where they were, but then they went somewhere else and they found they weren't the best of the best. They were just average. And in fact, I had the same drama in a different way when uh, serving in the army, I had some outstanding reports and been told I was wonderful and such a talented officer. And then I got, to be sent as an instructor to Santa's, which is where the best of the best go to teach the next generation of officers. And I found I was just average there. Uh, hard, <laughs> what do you mean? Oh yeah, major sort of life sort of re realignment you have to go through. Um, and, and also friends of mine who are senior tutors in colleges at Oxford and Cambridge that I've talked to, say so they have quite a lot of mental health issues um, with the students who are there because of this crisis that they're going through. Um, so it, it's not to be taken lightly and more, no. more can be done, particularly around the mental health, the imposter syndrome, the self-belief. What's, what's your experience and thoughts? Well, I think it, it's funny because I've come across imposter syndrome in so many different places in myself and in others. And certainly it's there at Oxford. And, and I think probably that's becoming more intense because social media layers on a whole new level of pressure to have a great time. Mm. I think in my work, I've seen imposter syndrome in two places. I spent a long time interviewing A-list actors about confidence for my first book. Mm -hmm. And I was working at a drama school at the time, working at Central, teaching actors, blithely assumed that A-list actors would have some degree of confidence. Mm. 
And of course, you will know from all the interviews you've done, that's just not the case with people at the top level. Mm -hmm. Increasingly, as we're able to talk about our, you know, vulnerabilities and doubts, what I found is that all of them, you know, Helen Mirren, Sarah Jessica Parker, Kate Winslet, you name it, Francis McDormand, they all had massive vulnerabilities and most of them had some degree of imposter syndrome. Yeah. Bill, Bill Nye talked about how he thought he would get walked off set on his first day of filming. Mm. And, and, and that has given me, because it gave me permission, because they all had it, it gave me permission to be okay with it in myself. Yeah, yeah. Because if you can reach the top level of acting with it, you can do anything. Yeah, I think, I think you've really hit upon something very important to people listening. And, and as, as I'm interviewing 50 and I've got another 50 and, and many more lined up, CEOs, Lord Mayors, generals, um, fitness trainers, you know, senior vice presidents, they all begin to open up about some of the issues they've had, whether it be PTSD or cancer or feeling they weren't good enough. Um, and in some ways, the dysfunction that we all have, and I'm one of them, um, in fact, it gives me great encouragement that it's okay to be dysfunctional. It's shown me someone who is functional, like a dysfunctional and functional family. I've never yet met a functional family. Most of us. No, gosh, no. And um, it's like the question I ask, you know, when was the last time you were dead wrong to a CEO? And if they really can't think of a time, that's a problem. But, mm. but if they are self-aware sufficiently to know that they're driven by this sense of not being good enough, wanting to prove, uh, as I have often, to a long dead father that I was good enough or to somebody who, who wasn't there. Like my uh, English teacher who told me age seven that I was gonna be a dustman because I couldn't, I, couldn't, oh, I couldn't spell and I couldn't do my maths. The fact that I was dyslexic, oh. she didn't know I was dyslexic, she just sort of wrote me off, which was not very encouraging, but luckily my mother, believed in me and said, no, no, dear, you, you, you'll be good with people. And if, if you can't spell, it doesn't matter, we'll find a way. And um, it's amazing how technology has helped me with write a couple of books with Dragon, naturally speaking, and, yeah. uh, and listening to 80 audio books a year, which I'd never read that number of books. So sometimes a disadvantage becomes an advantage, but I, I do find, and I'll just pass it back over to you in a moment, that with these very high achieving men and women, it is their dysfunction, their anxiety, their over-anxious overachieving that has pushed them on. That in some ways, those who are most comfortable and happy with themselves are, just have what others would think is not successful with inverted commas, um, but they're very comfortable and they're not constantly pushing themselves on and never fulfilled, never satisfied because they're always chasing that uh, that ace that they can never get what do you think i think it's that it's that paradox isn't it that yes leaders often have that need that propels them on and then there's something about the moment that you hit a certain level of leadership where people need you to be able to shut that down and to be quiet it's funny i was working with a, a leader this week she flew in from new york for a session um <coughs> she's often in london and she she was in a building very near um ground zero 
she and she said we were all off work you know we were all working from home out of the building for about nine months and we we went back into work as a as a team and I had to lead at that moment and she said I, I looked out at them and I thought oh my god they need me to have a vision they need me to take this forward they need me to make them feel safe here and she said I, I wanted to run away mm. I wasn't ready and she said I realized I didn't have a choice they were looking to me to have a plan mm. and so as much as she would admit I'm sure that she has all sorts of neuroses and imposter syndrome she, at that moment she just had to put them down she said I went away for a day and tried and worked it out she had to come back and ha and get quiet and be present and be there mm -hmm. in service of people who were effectively traumatized by what they've yeah. seen yeah. nine months prior. Yeah. And so, yes, imposter syndrome is present, I think. from I, I learn, the more I hear from leaders who are speaking on big stages, I hear it from everybody because mm -hmm. they tell me. But yeah. I think also you have to be able to quieten that voice down for others because otherwise you can't fully lead. Yeah, that's really perceptive. And... In, in both the books you've written, if you were to share you know, three or four top tips for us to be better speakers and speak with confidence and gravitas, what, what would you share, Karen? The first thing I would say is that it's really important to get to know your voice, your instrument. Mm. And it's funny, we don't learn necessarily about it in school unless you're a singer, but I think just starting to get to grips with the, the way that the voice travels out of your lungs, the way it hits your larynx, the way it resonates out into the world, and just getting comfortable with... It's not learning to like the sound of your own voice, because that's not a good thing in our culture, but it's learning to feel your voice and feel how embodied it is. Mm. That will allow you to stand up in front of an audience and not be a talking head, but be a of a rounded embodied human being, real embodied leadership. And the simplest way to start to get more of a sense of your voice is just to sing. Now, I'm not saying sing as you walk across the floor at work, because mm. that may not be what you want to convey. But if you're in the car on your own and you put some music on and sing along, or in the kitchen making coffee in the morning, it's really good to sing. Mm. And don't worry about whether you're tuneful or whether it's perfect. Just enjoy the feeling of your voice because the next time you have to do an all-hands call or stand up at a road show or go do a town hall for 800 people, you will start to notice that your voice is centered in your body. It's not stuck in your throat. and People respond differently to that because I've had both. Yeah, you know. that's very good. I'm, I am going to now sing more. And what, what, what else would you advise us? This is a pattern that I am seeing so much in senior leaders at the moment, and it's it's this is a bit of tough love. It's that people don't make time for the words that are written for them. So so often here's here's what happens. I see this pattern on a weekly basis. The leader says to the comms team, "I've got to do a speech at X event." The comms team go off and write a beautiful speech often ex-journalists, very good with words. It comes back to the leader, they change it, it goes back to comms, and this, this kind of back and forth goes on. And then the leader gets the speech the day before, doesn't really have time to read it, shows up at the event pretty much reading it for the first time. Mm. And three weeks of busyness has gone on 
to create these words, which they will then deliver like a speak your weight machine because they haven't had time to connect to them. Mm. And I, w I would say to anybody working in that way, stop. <laughs> Before you start to script, sit down with your comms person, give them 20 minutes to half an hour of your time and tell them three stories that you want to talk about. Don't let them write notes, get them to put it on voice notes and record it. Mm. And then when they write your speech, get them to write it almost verbatim to what you've said in your mm. words mm. and then shape the structure around it because then you will have a speech that is you in your voice and that is so much easier to deliver than someone else's words in their voice. You're so spot on. And in my enjoyment of audiobooks, I find I get massively irritated if someone else is reading the author's words. Exactly. Exactly. And so it, I, I listen right. it doesn't sound right. I listened to Sir Ken Robinson and there's three books that has come out from him and only one he reads. The other two I listened to and I didn't buy them, but I bought the book that he speaks uh, to. And um, looking back on the mistake I made with my very first book back in 2010, 10 years ago now, I, because I'm anxious with the dyslexia, I had a script of my book that I'd written, which I had actually dictated it. I, I'd spoken my word into the book and that was mainly it. And then I changed it around a bit, but I read out from a script, my book, and it was too wooden. I should have yes. actually, you know, looked at it, put it away and just told some stories. Um, exactly. Because when, as you're right, the, the rule of three, when you're telling three stories and the story is yours, own the story, it's mistake and, you know, it's successes. But if you can, like in life, own your story, but if the story isn't such a good one, still own it, but perhaps you can find a better ending to it than you've had thus far. What's your thoughts? Oh, I, I just... We are always so much better when it's our story, our voice, and and no matter how brilliant your comms team, they they can't read your mind. No. no. And so you have to take ownership of the process. And the the best leaders, well, not the best leaders, but the the leaders who speak in a way that really grabs attention, gets people listening, they understand that it has to be their own words, their own voice. And yeah. If you start the process right by telling people what you want to say, it takes half an hour and it will save so much back and forth. That's a very good tip. Now, in our last um, period of time on this podcast, uh, we've all had some highlights and we've all had some lowlights. Before we hit the highlights, what, what has been the darkest part of your life, the toughest part of your life, both firstly at work and then in your personal life? that you'd share and what did you learn from those dark moments? So uh, often dark moments come with high moments, don't they? They kind of go together. And I, the, the best, one of my the best moments of my life was the moment where an agent called Johnny Geller said he would take on my first book. And that was wonderful. And he's a truly great agent and a lovely man, but he took on my book and he liked it because he's an ex actor. But then we pitched it out to, gosh, I think maybe 10 publishers over about two months. And everybody said no. Everybody said no. And that, that period felt incredibly um, out of control and demoralizing and personal. And 
it was very hard to get through. So it taught me two things. One is that when someone gives you criticism like that, it feels personal, but you can't take it personally. You've just got to learn from it and then move on because ultimately the book did get published. Mm. Mm. And you have to separate the feedback from who you are because otherwise it just destroys you. That's good. Good learning from a tough time. And what about personally? What's been a really hard time for you in your life personally? Well, I think this will resonate with anybody who's had, who's gone through the periods with babies, small children, you know, the whole process. I think probably for men, it it is a different thing. It's exhausting in a different way. But the process of having children and coming back to work and feeling different and feeling exhausted and having to kind of pick yourself back up each time, Mm. that that kind of coming back and having to get it all back together again has taught me a to be very understanding when people are coming back from big life changes whether they're coming back from work from maternity leave or from um you know a grieving process or having lost a job that you just have to give people time to get back to their top speed and sometimes mm. people do need that time and it's yeah. given me empathy around that mm. Mm, no, that's, that's and our a, lives do have peaks and troughs and i think that's also okay you know yeah. you can't be on top form all the time no, it's no. not possible definitely not we, we we it we need to have this sinusoidal wave of excitement and then recovery and then excitement again or or, or learning from our mistakes you either succeed or you learn and then and i do go on, sorry you were saying so and i do really feel for leaders in big businesses because i think it must be doubly hard Mm. to do that uh, in the full view of the kind of theatre of corporate leadership. It it certainly, it certainly is. So let's go up onto a high and then leave them with a top tip, perhaps a top tip to be a better speaker and leader. What would be um, a high point of your life and career that you uh, always look back on fondly? I suppose that that one of the high points and one of the things that I'm really proud of was the TEDx I did because... Mm. It was something that I hadn't really planned to do. I was just speaker coaching for my local TEDx. And they said to me, do you want to pitch a talk? And they accepted it. I knew I wanted to talk about the voice and the voice is an instrument and the human body. And we found this prop that was a chest of drawers that looked like a man's torso. (laughs) So I found this incredible prop. I worked with a really great speaker coach and we created this talk that I felt was creative and fun and I was happy with and when it went on to be watched by seven and a half million people that was just wow a really um yeah I'm just really proud of that that yeah. it was useful to people mm-hmm. fantastic seven and a half million wow okay. it's quite mad congratulations so as we come to the close what would be your final tip to be a better leader and speaker from your experience very very simple And it works on two levels. It's to know when to close your mouth. So in speech, we talked about the gasp earlier on. Mm -hmm. I was working with this client this week on her big conference speech. And one of the things that really helps people as speakers is just to know that when they get to a full stop, to close their mouth. Mm. Because what that does is allows the body to take a nice nostril breath in, which goes low and wide into the body and just centers the system. It powers up the voice. So closing your mouth as a speaker on a stage is powerful. Mm. But I I also think, you know, in all the 
themes that we thought about, you know, talked about the ease and the voice and your listening, quieting the imposter syndrome, sometimes just being able to quieten down yourself, close mm -hmm. your mouth, mm -hmm. really properly listen. That is the secret to great speakers. Great speakers are not overconfident. They're not loquacious. They're not any of these things. They're just really great listeners. And and if we can hone our capacity to listen and to be present, then we are honing our capacity to be good speakers. And I just, I think all of us can hone that more. Fantastic. What a lovely way to end. Caroline Gorda, thank you very much indeed. That was a, a truly inspiring podcast and I'm sure many will take a lot from it and I wish you every success with carrying on inspiring people and helping people to learn and develop. Uh, I, I've really enjoyed that and looking forward to when we next meet. So thank you, Karen. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been great fun. Really enjoyed it. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.